do it. <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> just take the first step because, you know, as human beings, we tend to always come up with excuses. There will never be the perfect time to do it. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough time. You just have to do it. You know, when I started out, I didn't have the money. In fact, I had like maybe a thousand rand to my name. And I couldn't get sponsors because nobody believed I could do it or didn't want to get involved because it was too risky. But I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is what I had to do. And it worked out. You know, you know, you just have to take action. Today I speak to Joe Rust. She is this amazing person who rode around Africa on her motorcycle. And I just had to speak to her and hear how a journey like that changes a person. ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this. Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Welcome in the studio, Joe. Thank you so much. I heard about you through a friend of mine who said, I really absolutely have to speak to you because of this adventure that you went on. But we'll get to that a little bit later. The first thing that I'd like to ask you is, where were you born and raised? Oh, wow. So I was born on the East Rand in Johannesburg. I was born in Kempton Park and grew up in Kempton Park, went to school there as well. So um, that's where I was up until about the age of 18. And what was your family like? Ooh, family life was a bit difficult growing up. So it wasn't a very easy environment to grow up in because I had parents and grandparents, well, adults surrounding me that were struggling with alcoholism. So they obviously had struggles that they were working through. So it was, it was quite tough growing up, actually. So, so what were you like as a child? I mean, when did you start cycling? Did you have one of these little scooters and that was the first two-wheeler thing you had? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ask me that. And um, it's strange how that came about. I mean, I, I had a bike as a child. Get your first bike. I had like a little pink BMX, I remember. I have a younger brother and we used to cycle everywhere. You know, we grew up in a time and in a place where we weren't allowed inside the house. So during the day, it was like, get out. We don't want to see you until supper time. So we would ride around the whole neighborhood on our bikes all the time, and it was uh, amazing. I loved it. As a kid growing up, though, I was a very sensitive child, and I grew up with a lot of fears. So my escape was always adventure, being outside and embarking on my own adventures. So what did you want to be when you grew up? So the first thing that I remember wanting to be growing up was I wanted to become a scientist. <laughs> and I, I remember so well the day that I said to my dad, I, I want to become a scientist when I grow up. And 
you know, I was so sure that's what I wanted to do. And then that changed to wanting to be a lawyer. Thank God I did not study that. <laughs> no offense to lawyers, but <laughs> just not my thing. Um, and, you know, it changed throughout my life. I've always struggled to find exactly what it is I want to do up until recently when I found my real passion in life, which is psychology. Okay. Um, so what did you do after school when you, you finished school and then somewhere in between finishing school and, and now you decided to go on an adventure? So how did that all come about? Well, um, it's quite a complex story. I mean, there's, there's a lot involved in it. You know, for as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated with trying to figure out how our minds work. Why do I think and feel and react the way I do? And because I grew up a child who had all these fears, from a very young age, I had this need to overcome these fears. So I remember maybe at age eight or nine, I would have my brother lock me in my cupboard so I could learn at will, so I could learn how to calm myself down, you know, and how to breathe and how to control my thinking. And so when I finished school, well, a lot happened in between finishing school and actually embarking on this big, massive journey around Africa. The first thing I did was I went to Israel for a year and spent a year on a kibbutz in Israel. And that was kind of my first time outside of South Africa. It was a great adventure and I absolutely loved it. And it opened my eyes. I think as it does with so many people, if you've never traveled, you realize, oh, wow, there's a whole wide world out there. And I, I loved it, absolutely loved it. And I came back and like I said, I struggled for a long time to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And then there was an event in my, in my life um, in 2007, a very tragic event that really affected me in a massive way and that made me decide to actually embark on this trip around Africa. I struggled with depression since a very young age and it actually got to a point where with this tragic event, I ended up um, contemplating committing suicide and I remember this day, you know, I was sitting in a swing underneath a tree and crying my eyes out. And then um, something happened. Something shifted in my mind. And it happened in an instant where I realized I don't want to do this. And as afraid as I was and as scared as I was, you know, something was telling me, well, okay, if I'm not going to take my own life, then I'm going to go the exact opposite way and do the biggest, scariest thing, take on the biggest, scariest thing that I could think of. And right in that moment, it was, well, I want to become the first woman to travel around Africa on my own. That's amazing. But before that, you tried to do it on a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> so you started off with a bicycle. Yeah. And, yeah. and didn't you cycle around South Africa? Yes, yeah. So, yes, you did that first. Yeah, so first I went from Joburg to Cape Town on the bicycle. So I decided to do it on the bicycle because it was the cheapest way. Um, and <laughs> so I decided, well, I'll go from Joburg to Cape Town first, kind of proof of concept, to show people that I am capable of doing it. 
So then I cycled from Joburg to Cape Town. And once I finished that, I cycled around South Africa, um, which took me exactly 100 days. And I think it was just short of 6,000 kilometers. And but this was also in an attempt to get more sponsors on board because this was the most difficult part because, you know, <laughs> well, thinking back at it, now if I had approached myself <laughs> and said, I'm going to go travel around Africa on my own, then I, as a potential sponsor, I might also have thought, well, this is a bit risky. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so that's how I started on the bicycle. And then the idea was to go all the way around the continent on a bicycle, but I made it from Cape Town to Angola until my bicycle was stolen in Northern Angola. Where did this happen? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> as, would have it. It was one Saturday, I think it was, and in northern Angola, I was on my way to the Congo, and I got up the morning and packed up my camp so I would sleep, like kind of in the bushes, <laughs> you know, in my tent. And I got on the road, and as I started pedaling, uh, this black Ford Bucky pulled over in front of me, and four guys got out of it, which at the time I didn't really think anything of it because a lot of people stopped to find out, you know, who I was and what I was doing. I would kind of stick out like a sore thumb wherever I went. And it wasn't until they pulled out uh, knives and machetes that I realized that they weren't here for a chat. And so long story short, they stole my bicycle and all my kit. And um, I got away, so I ran away, made a run for it with my, I still had my camel back on my back. And in it, I had my phone and my passport and my cards. So I was able to phone a friend in Luanda, a friend who is very well connected within the Angolan government. And within minutes, he um, had phoned the local chief of police, had phoned the governor in the area, and it was absolute chaos. You know, within minutes, the nearest police station, they deployed a car with police officers to come and find me and make sure that I'm safe, bring me back to the town. The governor of that province in the north, the Zaire province, flew in to come and make sure that I was safe. And they deployed two helicopters from the capital. I just thought to myself, this is, this is like something out of a Hollywood movie. Yeah, this is insane. And all for a bicycle. I mean, this is <laughs> this is absolutely insane. And but that day changed my life because I returned back home eventually and the Angolan government got in touch with me wanting to apologize for what had happened. And I took a chance because they one of their ministers contacted me and he said to me, you know, if there's anything we can do to help you, uh, let me know. And I was like, well, <laughs> I can't think of something. And I took a chance and said to him, look, um, I actually want to start over. And I had decided that I want to start over on a motorcycle pretty much the moment that I saw my bicycle disappear over the horizon <laughs> with these guys. And I thought in that moment, standing in the middle of nowhere in northern Angola, I just thought to myself, there's got to be an easier way. And so he said to me, okay, well, send us a proposal and a budget, which I did. And I think it was two weeks later, he came back and he said, yes, 
the Angolan government will sponsor your entire trip. And that's how I started over on a motorcycle. And were you a biker no, before that? never been on the bike before oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> so you just decided, I'm going to get a motorcycle and I'm going to go around Africa on a motorbike this time around. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so you had to learn first how to ride a motorbike, I guess. Yes. Was the first step. So my <laughs> my brother used to ride motorcycles. So I asked him if he would teach me how to ride a bike, just the basics, how to pull away, how to handle the clutch gears. Um, and he got so frustrated with me. <laughs> and so I think he gave up on me after a couple of hours. So I eventually taught myself but I think because I had spent so much time on a bicycle like on a mountain bike you know I'd been on mountain bikes all my life it kind of came to me naturally I I was quite comfortable on the bike when I got my first bike it was a, a Kawasaki KLR 650 and it's quite a tall bike and I'm I'm not that tall so I'm 167 so that yeah five foot four one six seven and I got on this bike and I could barely touch toes. And I was, it didn't really, well, it did bother me because I was like, you know, what if this thing topples over? So when I bought this bike with the Angolan government's money, uh, they had to deliver it for me and because I couldn't ride it home. And I remember getting on the bike for the first time. I nearly fell off the other side. And I was like, <laughs> what am I doing? And I decided, well, okay. What I have to do is I have to get on this bike right out of the garage and just go, go have coffee with a friend or something. Just go so I can get over the fear and get used to it. And that's exactly what I did and never looked back. Yeah, I have a very similar story because I learned to ride in a little 250 BMW. I went on the BMW course. Yeah. And for two days, it's a two-day beginner's course. You go and they give you a little bike. Yeah. And, and then I ordered a F650GS Suzuki, um, which is a huge bike. It's 210 kilos. And I ordered it from the garage. I looked at it and I went, that's a cool bike. I think I want that one. <laughs> and then I said to them, please deliver it to my house. It's in my garage. It's standing there. I've only ridden it only two days, a little 250. Yeah. And, and I went, oh, well, I have to go around the block. I actually managed to get it out around the block and rode up the road and fell over. Okay, so brand new bike, absolutely broke the mirror <laughs> off. Okay. So this dude stops and he says, can I help you pick it up and just get it back into your driveway and into your garage? And I'm like, okay, did that. And then the next day I go to the Suzuki dealership and I say, I broke the mirror off my bike and I need a new one. And they went, can you ride? And I went, not no. really. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, and they gave me the name of a guy and they said, this guy will teach you how to ride a bike. Okay. okay. And I phoned him and I'm still friends with that guy. So he came and he taught me how to ride this bike. Awesome. And yeah, and the first thing he taught me to do is how to stop. So we went the whole day just stopping. Okay. Just stopping. <laughs> stopping so that I knew how to do that. And then from there onwards, he taught me how to ride it. Okay. So that was, that's my funny story of going, I'm going to do this. And then it wasn't quite <laughs> as easy as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So now you've got a bike. Yeah. Okay, and you you didn't ride this bike around Africa. No, so okay. so what happened yeah. was the KLR went for its first service. And after I got it back, I went to Cape Town, came back, and it ended up running out of oil and the engine seat. 
So there was this huge dispute between myself and Kawasaki South Africa um, over this is not supposed to happen. But I ended up losing faith in the bike and sold it. Well, I didn't sell it right away, but I ended up buying the BMW F650 Dakar. So, you know, before I actually bought a bike, obviously I did some research on, you know, what would be the best bike to take on a trip like this. And it came down to either the KLR or the Dakar, the BMW Dakar, or the Africa Twin. But the Africa Twin is a bit heavier. So I actually always wanted BMW. So it worked out perfectly. So I got the BMW and I was perfectly comfortable on it from day one. Absolutely loved the bike. Yeah. So mm-hmm. and ended up yeah, doing the, the whole trip on that. Yeah. I'm also short. I'm 163. Okay. So it's always a struggle finding a bike that you're comfortable on is light enough and... You know, you're not going to topple over. I have this fear the whole time that I'm going to fall over if I'm on a very, very heavy bike and that you can't pick it up again, you know. <laughs> my, my rule of thumb has always been you have to be able to reverse the bike. You have to be able to push it back with your legs, okay? Yeah. And I went against my own rule of thumb this time. <laughs> anyway. I couldn't do that on yeah. the Dakar. So I would have to get off the bike and push it back. Um, mm. But it's, it's the strangest thing, you know. I, I started learning on these tall bikes, so... After that, now it's not a problem for me. It doesn't matter what bike I get onto. It's, it's, I've learned how to, you know, kind of shift off the side and just stand on yeah. one foot. Um, and I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. And we'll probably get to that. But, you know, I became an off-road instructor. So now, I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable on whatever bike I ride. Mm. Oh, that's cool. So how was your strategy different the second time around Africa? The first time it was, I'm going to cycle around, that sort of thing. So then it was a motorcycle. And how did you prevent the same thing from happening that happened Well, this is the thing. You can't. Um, You don't know what's going to happen. So it might happen again. And the thing is, I think what was most important to me at the time was I was well aware of the risk. And I accepted that something might happen again, which it did. (laughs) But what was more important was my mindset around how to deal with that. Because the second time around, the only thing that was different is, okay, this time, well, it's much easier. I'm not pedaling the whole day. (laughs) I had discovered the engine, which was awesome. Some people have discovered that like hundreds of years ago. (laughs) 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 So the only difference now was that I could go further in a day so, and it's obviously faster, but other than that, my strategy was still the same. Uh, it, it didn't really change. So the only thing that changed is that I could travel further in the day. So it might not take me as long to go around Africa. And I didn't really have a time frame in mind. It's not like I decided, okay, I want to do this in six months or I want to do this within a year. You know, for me, it was all about the journey and allowing the journey to just happen. So I, I didn't plan a lot. I had a general idea of the route that I wanted to follow. But other than that, I, I didn't plan on where I was going to stay on a daily basis. I didn't plan on where I was going to stop. Um, the idea was just to experience it, not to overplan it. What did you learn about yourself during this whole journey? Wow, yeah, a lot. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> so it took me about a year to go around Africa and I spent a lot of time on my own, um, which 
I'm comfortable doing that. A lot of people can't be on their own, but for me, that was never an issue. But I learned a lot. Like I learned how to control my fears. I learned that I'm capable of far more than I give myself credit for. I learned that people are basically good. I learned that we get what we expect. If you expect something to be a drag or difficult, then that's what it's going to be. I learned that a lot of life has to do with your mindset and being conscious of the fact that to just what extent your thoughts um, and emotions affect your life. That's pretty much all that it is, is, you know, the control that you practice over your thinking and your actions and your emotions. If you were going to face like a really difficult day and you were sort of worried about it and you were a bit, a bit scared for where you were going to go drive through or I know Nigeria was a big challenge for you to get through and if you're anticipating it's going to be a difficult day, what do you do something in the morning? Do you have sort of a routine that you go through in your mind to prepare yourself mentally for that yeah, day? Yeah, so what I discovered was this uh, tool that I used in the sense of it's a practical thing that I did whenever I had a difficult day. Like I knew border crossing days were always were always quite hectic. So before I embarked on this journey, um, I still suffered from really bad social phobia. So it was difficult for me to be around people and especially in strange places. And now I was in strange places every single day around strange people every single day. And what I ended up doing is, if it was a border crossing day, I would prep myself in the morning, make sure that I had everything, all my paperwork in order, so I didn't have to worry about that. I would make sure that, you know, I'd strap everything on my bike as tight as I possibly could, because the other challenge was, of course, being on my own. There was no one to look after my stuff whilst I was sorting out my paperwork and having my passport stamps and all of that. So... What I would do is when I got to the border town or just before a border, like five kilometers before it, I would stop and then I would allow myself to feel scared for 10 seconds or 10 counts. And the rule was once I get to 10, then go, just do it. You know, don't think because that's the problem is when we think too much, (laughs) you know, just don't think, just do it. And it's become something that I use up until this day now. So it's changed a bit. It's evolved a bit. Um, There's actually a woman, her name is Mel Robbins, and she came up with what she calls the five-second rule. And basically, it works on a lot of stuff. So if you're afraid of something or if you're procrastinating or whether it be having to get out of bed in the morning or going to the gym, we'll never feel like doing the things that we actually need to do. You'll never feel like it. You have to force yourself to, to do stuff. And mm-hmm. so the five-second rule, what it is, is let's say your alarm goes off in the morning. You count back from five to one, five or three to one, and then you just do it. Because once you take action, you're not thinking about it anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, so it's, it works on the same premise. And it's something that I use daily in my life now. Yeah, so what I do 
is I go to gym in the morning. What I do is I make sure everything's prepared. It's right next to the bed. Yeah. And when the alarm goes off, I don't think about it. You just get out of bed. Yes. Just get out of bed, put your clothes on, take your stuff, go to gym. I normally wake up halfway through the gym session. Go, oh, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm here. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, yeah, and, but, and that's, that's the difference because if you had given yourself time to think about it, then you give yourself time to convince yourself that, nah, maybe not today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, just go for it. And that's why if somebody says to me, when would you like to do something? I just go, let's do it now. Yes. Let's do it right now. Okay, so let's not think about it. Let's not try and schedule it. If we can do it right now, let's do it right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that, and that works a lot for me as well. Okay. I have to ask you, the whole idea of going on this huge adventure is, is amazing. I'm also quite an adventurer. I went paragliding in Europe last year. Oh, awesome. And yeah, and we did the same thing. It was like a gypsy tour. So you don't know where you're going to end up in, on the day. You go with a group, but you go where the wind is going to be good. You just follow the wind and you, you have to just trust that the guys organizing the tour is going to find a place for you to stay yeah. that evening. And you just have to relax breathe, do your paragliding. It can be quite scary and it's quite high and that sort of stuff, but you have to just do it. You just have to step off the mountain and go. Yeah. But I have to ask you, because I, I completely agree with you that you have to see as much of the world as you possibly can because that changes your perspective on everything. Yeah, it does. You shouldn't be spending your, your money on stuff. You should be spending your money on experiences and speaking to people and all that sort of stuff. And I watched the video of, of your trip, all the photos on, on YouTube. Oh, yes. And yeah. there's so many photos of you with people around you and people hugging and you're smiling and stuff. And, and then you tell me you had a social phobia, but all these people are in the photos and smiling and helping you. And so how much, how much did you learn to trust people and just let them help you and be part of your journey and, and share it with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was maybe one of the biggest lessons because I had to – allow people in and I had to trust them because one of the biggest lessons I learned while going on this trip, although it was a solo trip, I was never alone. It was never about being alone. It was about allowing myself to um, open up to other people. And strangely, people are always kind of attracted to me. So people were always coming to me and chat to me, which I love. I really actually enjoy it. And the thing with when you're traveling on your own, people feel more comfortable approaching you um, as opposed to if you are in a group. So I always had people around me. And I think, like you said, when you travel, you learn so much about other people and about yourself and about the world. And, you know, People were always just wanting to help me, always. They always just wanted to know, well, first off, people were curious about what the hell I was doing. <laughs> but beyond that, people always just wanted to help me and make sure that I felt comfortable in their country, very hospitable everywhere I went in Africa. And like you mentioned Nigeria earlier, and that was one of the countries that I went like, oof, you know, in the heart of Western Africa. And we all know about Nigeria. But we build up these biases because that's all you hear without really experiencing what a place really is about. And I had absolutely zero issues in Nigeria. People were so friendly, so helpful. And in places that you wouldn't expect, like in Libya, 
one of my favorite stories is in Libya. I went through Libya in a time where it was, well, it's still difficult to get through there. But it was just by pure fluke that I was allowed to get into the country. And it was only because the Minister of Tourism, who is a woman, she invited me personally into Libya. And that's the only way I could get in. And it was via, I had a friend who had a friend who has a friend who has a friend, that kind of thing. That's the only way I could get in. And it was it was scary as hell. Whilst in Tripoli, I mean, it was literally having bombs going off around you at night. And it was a war. It was in the middle of a war zone. And I remember one day getting into a town. The town's name was Ashdabia. And I went to a little shop. I needed to get some, some stuff, cold drinks and whatever, snacks and food. And as I got to the counter, the shop owner started packing just more stuff into my bag. And I didn't really understand what was going on. But I was like, okay, I'll just allow this because I don't quite know what to do. And after he'd sold my bag with goodies, he handed it over to me and just said, welcome to Libya. And I was like, this is so amazing. (laughs) I had so many of those type of heartwarming things that happened, moments that happened all the way around Africa. That's amazing. And (laughs) (laughs) um, cool. So if you had to rate your top three to five sites in Africa, because you went all the way around, what were the sort of three to five 100% highlights of going around? Places you saw? Well, yeah. I mean, in general terms, the people um, with obviously the biggest highlights. And there are some really beautiful countries in Africa. And it was an amazing experience to see places. You know, I've always been fascinated with going to Gabon and experiencing an actual jungle uh, like you would see in the Amazon. And I got to experience that and it was, I loved it. The cultures. I loved experiencing the different cultures, you know, going through mostly French influence, Western Africa to Northern Africa. I went through two Ramadans in Northern Africa, uh, which was amazing. And there's just so much. I mean, I have so many amazing stories of the journey. It was such a mammoth trip. But um, I think... The main thing was what I learned about myself, the growth, personal growth, the experience um, with interacting with all these different people from different cultures and different countries and the absolute warmth that I experienced throughout everywhere and the beautiful scenery. But yeah, that's pretty much my highlights. (laughs) And then, of course, your motorcycling skills as well. They must have improved immensely from <laughs> before and after the journey. <laughs> yeah, well, the the most hilarious part is, so I embarked on this whole journey, literally wobbled my way up through Africa, coming back down. And then when I finished the trip, I went for a training course. <laughs> like, okay, I'll go around Africa 45,000 kilometers, come back, then I'll go for training. <laughs> But you must have had a head start, I guess, on the as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you want to do it again? Um, no. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> the only reason I say that is no, because now I want to experience something new, you know, something else. It was an amazing journey and I absolutely loved all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. Very grateful for the experience. Uh, but now my life has changed a lot. Um, I'm in a different place now. That was a different part of becoming who I am today. And now I want to experience different things. So if somebody wanted to do that same trip, what advice would you give them? Just do it. <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> just take the first step. Because as human beings, we tend to always come up with excuses. There will never be the perfect time to do it. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough time. You just have to do it. When I started out, I didn't have the money. In, in fact, I had like maybe a thousand rand to my name. And I couldn't get sponsors because nobody believed I could do it or didn't want to get involved because it was too risky. But I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is what I had to do. And it worked out. You just have to take action. Just start somewhere. So one of my favorite quotes at the moment, and I saw it on Facebook somewhere, was courage is knowing it might hurt and doing it anyway. Yeah. And stupidity is the same. And that's why life is hard. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so how do you balance courage against stupidity when looking for new challenges? <laughs> because a lot of people, like a lot of adventurers will just head off okay, and, and not necessarily try and anticipate the risk that they're going to face. So yeah. obviously you don't want to take unreasonable risk. So how do you decide what's acceptable risk and what isn't? Yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's a tough one. For me, it came down to um, trusting my gut. So that's another thing I learned on this trip is to absolutely trust my instincts and my gut because it's a risk, but you know, every risk I took was a calculated risk. So I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. But at the same time, I wouldn't I wouldn't go into areas where on the news, they, when I was in Senegal, they had kidnapped a South African actually in Mali, in Timbuktu. So I didn't go to Timbuktu because that would be stupid. It's quite an yeah. interesting theme for me, and I've, I've discussed it with somebody else before as well, is that people will say to me, how can you ride a motorcycle in Joburg traffic? And I'm like... If I leave at seven o'clock in the morning, everybody else is standing still, firstly. So, yeah. and everybody's on their phone. If you go past the cars, every single person's on their phone. Yeah. The people who actually see you and make, give you a gap are the people who are not on their phones. And those are the taxi drivers. So the people who are perceived to be the most riskiest people on the road are the guys who are actually seeing me, okay, coming through the traffic. The guys who are not seeing me are the guys who are on their phones in the car and not yeah. looking around them. They're distracted yeah. and not. Yeah. And, and my theory is that people who are willing to take calculated risks, like bikers in the traffic or paragliding or whatever you're going to be doing, is you're actually much more risk averse than most people. That you actually have looked at the risks, you've weighed them up, you've made a decision, and you're just going to go with it. Okay? Whereas other yeah. people sort of go blindly through life without even thinking about the risk that they're exposing you to at that point in time. That's a theory that I've got, is that people who do stuff like motorcycling and paragliding are actually better with handling risk. Yeah. Yes, definitely. There's this interesting um, thing that I read and heard recently is 
when you study the top successful people in the world, you'll find that all of them take risks. They are for risk. Mm. And the one percenters, the top one percent of humanity are all adventurous people who take risks. Yeah. And because that's how you get anywhere. Everything is a risk, mm, isn't it? Yeah. Getting out of bed in the morning is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely so. You do you do a whole bunch of adventure type stuff. I checked out your website and you lead adventures and you have all sorts of stuff that happen. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you do in between adventures? So um, like I mentioned earlier, it's only recently that I have discovered or maybe rediscovered my actual passion in life. I mean, I love motorcycling. I do. And I've had the most amazing time going around Africa. And when I finished that, I became an ambassador for BMW Motorrad. I became an instructor, traveled to Germany a whole bunch of times. So I've done a lot of stuff with motorcycling and the motorcycling tours I've been doing for the last two years or so. But my actual real passion in life is something completely different, and that is in coaching and psychology. So I am actually studying psychology at the moment and have done a whole bunch of coaching certifications. And my, I think my, what should I call it? My purpose, I believe, is to take what I've learned and experienced over the years and to pay that forward to other people and to help people through whatever it might be that's holding them back in their lives. So that's what I'm working on currently. And and what's so cool about that is that you've got all of this very rich story background and analogies and stuff from your motorcycling around the continents or from coaching people or that sort of thing. You've got all of this um, richness that you can give examples of motorcycling is like this and life is like this. So you can actually draw yeah. parallels. I like to tell people, if you do paragliding right, it's effortless. It's so easy. It's, it feels completely zen. Your mind is open. You're just flying. It's easy and that sort of thing. But if you're fighting, yeah. you're glad you're doing something wrong. If you're fighting it, if you can't launch, if, you, if you're in the air and it's doing all sorts of funny stuff, you're actually doing something wrong. And life for me is a lot like that. If you're completely fighting with yourself the whole time, then you must be doing something wrong. You're in the wrong path somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You see. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. I mean, there are a lot of parallels that you can draw between paragliding, motorcycling, and teaching us lessons in everyday life. Yeah. What is your business at the moment? The service on your website, is that your business at the moment? Or are you you starting to become something else at the moment? So I'm in the place of transition at the moment. Like I said, I'm studying psychology. So I'm, I'm moving away from the motorcycling. Like I'm not doing tours at the moment anymore uh, to enable me to focus all my energy on, on what it is. Because like I said, I love motorcycling, but being a coach and a therapist is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I don't ride as much as I'd like to anymore <laughs> because I'm always studying. <laughs> I am a bit of a geek and I love studying. So I'm always either listening to an audiobook or reading or busy with a course. So yeah, I'm in the middle of that transition at the moment. I believe that you keep changing. You know, you keep changing, you keep growing into something else. And what's really important what I tell a lot of people is you need to understand what it is that you like or don't like. 
and you have to follow the stuff yeah. that you like and just go that way, you know. It's so nice to know where you want to go. It takes a lot of time to figure that out <laughs> to get to where you want to get to. It yeah. does. It does. You know, it's, it's taken me, yeah, it's taken me 35 years. <laughs> but um, when I finished the trip around Africa, that's when I started struggling with it because I was like this dog that had been chasing a bus for seven years. Because from the moment I decided I wanted to go around Africa until the moment I finished, it was seven years. The actual going around Africa physically took me a year. But, I mean, a lot of it, the run-up to it, you know, cycling through South Africa, around South Africa. So it's a long time to have one singular focus. And it was great whilst I had that focus. But the moment I finished, it was like, okay, now what? (laughs) I've caught the bus. Now what do Mm -hmm. I do? And I struggled with it for a long time. I really struggled with it. And I I remember the first six months back home, I was completely depressed because I didn't know what to do. Every day I had this routine of getting up, packing my bike, getting on my bike and moving on to the next place. And all of a sudden I had nowhere to go. And um, it's until now that I have learned in the last year or two that I've realized what I want to do. Now I'm in a much happier place because, you know, happiness equals fulfillment. If we're not fulfilled, we'll never be happy. Mm, Yeah. After all of that, what's next for you and where can people find out more about what you're up to at the moment? Now that I know what I want to do, I have completely immersed myself in the coaching and in psychology. So I am coaching at the moment. So that is my new business. And I have a website so people can either follow me on social media by just searching Joe Russ on all the social media platforms or they can visit my website which is joerust.com <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me in the studio it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you Thank you for having me it's always always fun This is Pietro Dupasani and you've been listening to Unchange If you like the show please write a review and share it with your friends